0: If you are uh, in kindergarten or first grade, you're excused for children's church. You can uh, just head to the back, I believe. So we are, as Pastor Seth said, we're going to be looking at a different passage. We're going to take a break from Deuteronomy for just a week and look at a, perhaps a familiar passage to many of you, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse uh, 1. Before I read that passage, it's on page 1,162, so you can turn there, 1,162. Uh, before I read the passage of Scripture, I want to share with you a little bit about my story. Um, actually, it's a, it's a unique part of my story that I don't get to share with too many people. Um, it's, it's my story as a Christian, which begins actually much earlier than when I became a Christian in college which may not make any sense to you, so let me explain. It began a a few hundred years in Sri Lanka, which is ethnically where I'm from. I grew up in this country, but uh, my parents grew up in Sri Lanka. Five generations ago, on both sides of my family, uh, they were Hindus, and they were residing in a plantation town in the north part of Sri Lanka called Jaffna. And uh, missionaries actually from Chicago, I've learned, traveled across the Atlantic, came to Sri Lanka, came to Jaffna, shared the gospel, planted churches, shared their lives with people in Jaffna, including the two sides of my family. And both sides of my family became Christians through their ministry. So I'm very thankful for these Chicago missionaries. In fact, I'm standing here before you all as a Christian, as someone who confesses Jesus in part due to their faithfulness which is pretty neat. I've wondered for years, what kind of people were these missionaries that took the gospel across the Atlantic and came to Sri Lanka? Of course, I don't have much to work with because it was a few hundred years ago. But I did talk to a historian that I know who helped me to kind of piece together some things. So some things that I do know, or we can perhaps say are probable about these missionaries first Most missionaries during this time, um, especially living in the Midwest, were middle-class people. And so I do know that when they came to Sri Lanka, they probably relinquished their possessions. Gave up their possessions, gave up their lifestyle for a different lifestyle, a poor and perhaps a lonely lifestyle. These missionaries, they also traveled across the Atlantic, underneath Africa, and then through the Indian Ocean to Sri Lanka. And so another thing I know about these missionaries um, as they traveled is that they put themselves in the way of sickness and potential death. In fact, about 50% of the people that made this voyage would die by the time they reached Sri Lanka, and then another quarter would pass away from sickness as they arrived, so they likely risked their own lives, certainly sickness, to come, take the gospel to the hard place, which was then Sri Lanka. I wonder, where, where are these kinds of people today? Where are these kinds of people today? The kinds of people that are willing to risk their health, their lives, perhaps their livelihood, for the sake of taking the gospel to the hard places, to the hard situations, to the hard people. What about us? I certainly don't feel like I'm in this category of people. I want it. I I pray for it. But this is not who I am today. And of course our culture doesn't help. I describe our culture as being one that values self-esteem and self-actualization and self-realization. We are a culture that is emotionally and psychologically fragile. And as Christians, we breathe this cultural air. So it's not easy for any of us to deny ourselves and go to the hard places. So this morning I want to take a look at a passage of Scripture, a beautiful passage of Scripture, which puts forth Christ Jesus as the prime example, the prime example of self-denial and humility. So let's uh, read this passage together and then I will pray. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, again page 1162 in your pew Bibles. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see Jesus Christ this morning. I pray for a renewed vision of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Lord, I pray that as we look at these perhaps familiar words, I pray that you would touch our hearts with the greatness and the supremacy of Jesus. I pray that we would not be numb to what we are reading. So I ask, Spirit, that You would come upon us and do the work that only You can do, that You would unite the Word of God to our hearts and that You would elevate Jesus in this place. Teach us, encourage us, challenge us, heal us, transform us. Lord, You are in the business of making dead people alive. And I pray that You would do that even this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little background about what's, what's going on here. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is under house arrest in Rome. Okay, so tradition says he was chained to one of the elite Roman guards, the Praetorian Guard. He was chained to this Praetorian Guard who would rotate every six or eight hours. He would uh, preach the gospel to people who would come to him. He would write letters to churches much like this letter he wrote to the church in Philippi. The Philippian church, they were struggling with different things. They were struggling with some things internally and then some things externally. Internally, they were struggling to stay unified. There were things that were were, were pulling them apart. So that was one of the reasons he wrote this letter. Another reason he wrote this letter is because there were false teachers from the outside that were coming in and trying to pervert the Gospel. They were twisting the teachings of Christianity. And so he is writing this letter to contend against these struggles. So Paul's concern here is that the church would remain unified so that the Gospel can go forth powerfully. In chapter 2, the first four verses that I read, Paul is essentially exhorting the church to stay humble, to be servants, To look at the interests of others ahead of themselves. And then in our passage, the passage we're going to focus on, verses 5 through 11, Paul then puts forth Christ as the model of service. This is an exciting passage. So let's start by looking at verse 6. We're going to come back to verse 5 at the end. Verse 6 says, "...who..." in reference to Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So the first thing that Paul does when he is bringing up Jesus as the model of humility, the first thing he does is say, say Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is, in the very nature, God. It's interesting, if we flip a couple pages, I'm not going to read the passage for you. There's a section in Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. I want to encourage you guys this week to take a look at that passage. It's a beautiful reflection on Jesus, where Jesus, again, is just lifted high. He is seen as supreme. And in that section, we see that Jesus participated in creation. That Jesus is the Creator, We also see that not only was He the Creator, but He was the sustainer of all things. He holds all things together by His righteous right hand. So Jesus creates all things. He sustains all things. So the laws of nature, gravity, the the three laws of motion, they exist because Jesus says so. And at any moment, Jesus could withdraw His sustaining power and things would fall apart. We're breathing right now because Jesus is allowing us to breathe. Our hearts are pumping blood through our veins because Jesus is sustaining our hearts. There are synapses in our brain that are firing, that are trying to understand and comprehend our discussion right now because Jesus allows it and sustains it. And then it says that this God, this creator-sustainer God, He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. What does that mean? Well, I think it means that Jesus did not selfishly cling to His rights and privileges as the Son of God. Jesus wasn't selfishly enjoying His divine status as the beloved Son of God. Now let's think about the Trinity for a moment here. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, three persons, one God. The Trinity is the first and perfect community. Within the Trinity, within the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, from eternity past and into eternity future, we see the first perfect community, perfect love in fact it's kind of like the first small group you know that Jesus was a part of Jesus was in the best spot because he was in this perfect community with the father and the spirit throughout the old and new testaments we see repeatedly glimpses of how each person of the trinity each person of the trinity makes room for the other the spirit part of his role is to make much of Jesus so he seeks to do that and Jesus His role is to be obedient and bring attention to His Father. So we see this wonderful interplay within the Trinity of love and community and giving. And so it is because Jesus is God that He would naturally not cling to His status as the Son. Rather, it is in His nature as God to give, to extend Himself for others. So, Jesus is God, but he did not selfishly cling to his rights and privileges as God. That's pretty amazing. Now, this is not just a perspective that Jesus had. You know, It's not like he said, "You know, I'd be willing to give of myself, but good thing I don't need to. This is something that Jesus actually expressed. He did something about this. That's what we're going to see here in the next few verses, in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 reads, But Jesus made Himself nothing. So what did Jesus do? He, he made Himself nothing. A more literal translation there is He emptied Himself. Jesus emptied Himself. He made Himself nothing. In other words, He didn't just think about not selfishly clinging to His rights as God. He actually relinquished some of them. I want to be clear here, Jesus didn't become less God when He came to earth. He didn't become less God. But He willingly chose to set aside aspects of His divinity, His his rights as God. He willingly chose to set some of those aside for you and for me. So Jesus chose to step into the muck and the mess of humanity. He chose to love us in that muck and mess. He chose to stoop lower and lower and lower into our existence so that He could rescue us from that mess. So what did He empty Himself from? What did He empty Himself of? The next few phrases in verses 7 and 8 kind of they express that. They tell us what he emptied himself of. The first thing we see here, the second phrase in verse 7, is that he took the very nature of a servant. He took the very nature of a, of a servant. Jesus became a servant. Think about that with me for a moment. The God of the universe. The God of the universe became a servant. Whose servant did he become? He became our servant. So the creator and sustainer of all things willingly subjected himself to lowly, sinful, wicked, hardened, messy people like you and me so that he could eventually rescue them from that mess. Jesus became our servant. Imagine you come home after a, a hard day's work, or maybe from school, or from running errands. You're home, and you plop yourself on the couch. It's something I would do. You turn the TV on, and you're just kind of relaxing. And, and then all of a sudden you're smelling some really tasty food being cooked in the kitchen. And you kind of peek around, and you, you take a look, and, and to your amazement, you see the President of the United States cooking dinner for you. And he's there, he's, you know, he's cooking dinner for you, and his wife is bringing out a, a silver tray of beverages, and there's like 20 beverages. This is great, and, and, and a little weird, but it's great. And, and so the president then sits you down, and, and, and you see the table, and it's all just perfectly laid out. And he sits you down, and he says, I want to serve you your dinner, and he brings you 20-ounce ribeye. And you're very happy. (laughs) Nothing amazes you more than the fact that the president of one of the most powerful countries in the world is serving you. Serving you. It would be unthinkable for someone so powerful to humble himself and serve you. And it is infinitely more ironic and more amazing And more unthinkable that the God of the universe would humble himself to serve us. Because God is infinitely greater, infinitely more supreme, infinitely more powerful than any human ruler. So Jesus has become a servant to serve us so that he may save us. This is amazing stuff. But we see He stooped even more. Not only did Jesus take the posture of a servant, but we see that Jesus became a man. Look at the last phrase in verse 7. It says, He was made in human likeness. So Jesus became a man. Jesus is a dude. If you were here, we could touch Him. He laughed. He cried. He probably joked around. Jesus is a dude. He took on the full gamut of existence, of human existence. So Jesus added to his divinity humanity. And that means he took on the constraints of a body, the spatial restrictions of a body. He took on the possibility of physical pain, disease, sickness. And being human, he also took on the possibility of temptation. And even though we know that Jesus never broke, He was perfect, being human, we still can say Jesus felt temptation. So Jesus became a human. We read in, in the first phrase in verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man. So Jesus was found in appearance of a man. Now, when I read that first, I thought, that's just a repeat of what we just read. That... He was made in human likeness. That's not a repeat. Paul is bringing our attention. He's drawing our attention to something else here. Not only was Jesus just a dude, but Jesus was only known as just a dude. Everyone around Jesus knew Him as only a man. So what this means is, for 33 years, Jesus chose to be a nobody. For 33 years, He chose for the fullness of His glory to be hidden from everybody. He chose not to be loved for who He was as God. He chose not to receive the attention and honor that is due His name. Instead, he was content with being just a mere dude, a nobody, a simple human being, just like the rest of us. In fact, he ended up being the son, as, as we know, of a simple carpenter raised in this sketchy hick town known as Nazareth. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. This means that Jesus was content with being misunderstood and misrepresented. For us. So the one who deserves all attention and all glory and all supremacy chooses not only to experience humanity, but to appear appear to everyone as just a mere man. But we see that Jesus' stooping goes even further, he stooped even lower. He didn't just empty himself of certain things. He didn't just take the form of a servant. He didn't just become a human. He didn't just become known to all people as just a mere man while he was on earth. Just when you thought that God couldn't stoop any lower, he did. He, he chose to endure more by humbling himself. Look at the middle of verse 8. It says that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So he not only emptied himself, he humbled himself. The word there actually has a flavor of humiliation. So Jesus chose the path of humiliation. What was that path? That path was the path of death and the path of the cross. Obedience didn't lead Jesus to more earthly recognition. It didn't lead Jesus to more power, more success, more popularity. It led Jesus to death. And not just any death, the worst kind of death. Unquestionably, this was the most shameful, degrading, and humiliating execution device during the Roman Empire. It was horrible. It was only reserved for slaves and criminals and rebels. In fact, no Roman citizen could be crucified unless the emperor himself would give the order. Crucifixion was so cruel that the word itself was avoided in everyday conversation. But here Paul says that Jesus, because he's that kind of God... Willingly embrace the horrible death on a cross reserved for the lowest of the low. So Jesus chose humiliation by willingly going to the cross. He chose the humiliation of the cross to save you and me. Jesus went the distance for us. He went the distance to save us. This is amazing stuff. But... I'm glad that the passage doesn't conclude with that. There's something else that happens here. Let me start reading verses 9-11. through Therefore God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, Therefore, because Jesus was obedient, because Jesus went the distance for us, God exalted him. God gave him the name that is above all names, the name of God, the name of Lord. You see, Jesus, he was supposed to perfectly display his Father. His life on earth was supposed to perfectly show us God. And so here we see that He did it. He did that. He perfectly displayed the goodness, faithfulness, love of His Father. And so God the Father exalts Him and stamps forever the name that is above all names. So from now on, whenever the world thinks about Jesus, they should be thinking beyond the son of a simple carpenter who led a rabble and died on a cross. They should think about God Himself and the unbelievable ways He has given of Himself for us. You know, a day is coming when all people will fully acknowledge Jesus' supremacy and His majesty. A day is coming. All those knees that once never bowed to anything except themselves will hit the dirt before Jesus Every tongue that once cursed and hated and blasphemed our Lord will one day confess Jesus as Lord, including you and me. So God the Father approved and vindicated Jesus because Jesus perfectly displayed the Father. So what is the significance of this text for us? This is a beautiful reflection of Jesus. And I hope that you and I, as we're thinking through this passage, that we, I hope we're celebrating. I hope we're celebrating Jesus' life and death. I hope we are in awe of what He has done for us. Because it's truly amazing. But Paul here wants us to do more than just consider and celebrate Jesus. Look at verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So Paul wants us to not only consider Jesus, but he wants us to imitate Jesus. So the first thing we learn here is that, hey, if you want, if you want to be unified, if you or if we as a church, if we want to see the gospel advance through us, And we've got to imitate Jesus' example of self-denial. We've got to choose to set aside our rights and our privileges for the sake of others. We've got to choose sometimes humiliation over recognition. We've got to choose His fame over our own likability sometimes. Sometimes. And sometimes our obedience, it's not going to lead to to more happiness or more success. Sometimes our obedience is going to lead to humiliation, misrepresentation, misunderstanding, and zero success. You know, sometimes I, I look at passages in Scripture and I feel like God is gently grabbing me. You know, from the, the the kiddie pool that I'm kind of messing around in, and he's just kind of gently walking me over to the adult pool, and, he, and he's saying, "Hey, here's the shallow end. You know, I want you to put your toe in the water for a second here?" And I'm just all happy and geeked up. Then there are other passages in the Bible where I feel like God comes over and just grabs me from my silliness in the kiddie pool, and he takes me to the deep end, and he's just like, whoop, "Right into the water." And I feel like this passage is like that for me. Maybe you feel the same way. Jesus, you want me to do what? You want me to do what? You want me to imitate you in this? Are you kidding me? You know, maybe this passage is for the super Christian. Maybe this passage is for um, pastors and elders and uh, you know missionaries and their wives. No, this passage is for every person in this room that calls on the name of Jesus. Jesus went the distance for us, and now his distance must become our distance. I've got to stoop like Jesus stooped. I need to be willing to put aside my rights and my privileges for others, for lost humanity, as Jesus did. You know, this teaching on self denial is all over the Scriptures. Jesus Himself talked a lot about it. Here's a sampling. Mark chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. In Philippians, earlier in chapter 1, Paul reminds the church, it has been granted to you not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for Him. And So we see just all over Scripture and in this passage, without sacrifice, without self-denial, without humility, no church will succeed. In other words, one of God's vehicles for building unity into His church and for advancing the gospel outside the church is our self-denial. Here's another way of saying it. If you and I, if we want to see this church united, if we want to see this church produce gospel fruit... we've got to be willing to die to ourselves. It's the path of Jesus and it must be the path of this church. It's so challenging to hear these words, I know. So how can we practically do this? How can we practically go the distance with Jesus for the sake of others, especially as we transition into a new facility and into a new season of this church's life? Well, first I think we need to get a hold of what Jesus did. He denied himself of certain rights. What are some rights that you and I, we cling to? And as a result of clinging to those rights, prevents us from being obedient. It prevents us from following Jesus into the hard places. Well, here's one. I just want to be liked. I just want to be liked. We take that one. We elevate it above everything else. And all of our words and all of our actions are to adjust other people's image or adjust our own image so that people will like us. And we elevate that to a place that's unhealthy. And it prevents us, it paralyzes us from going with Jesus to the hard places to do the hard things. Or how about this one? The right to privacy. This is my family. This is my space. These are my friends. And uh, you can say hi, but we're going to have some some, some walls between you and I. Just because I don't know you and I might not even have time for you. That's going to prevent this church from going the distance with Jesus. What about the right to convenience and comfort? This is a big one in America especially, right? We, we want things my way right now. And if I'm uncomfortable in some way, if things are a little inconvenient, oh my goodness. That's going to prevent many of us from following Jesus. So I want to give you guys five practical ways that we can follow Jesus in his self-denying way. Five ways. You can probably come up with 10 or 15 other ways. Okay, these are just five concrete ways that you and I can do this. The first thing is to welcome visitors at this church. To welcome visitors at this church. Only people who are willing to give up their rights will welcome and build relationships with new people. Number 2, practice hospitality. Make space for people at your home. Now, following Jesus might mean denying your right to privacy or comfort and opening up your home to someone that doesn't know you, that you don't know. Tangibly caring for people with a meal and good company. Number three, practice biblical community. Practice biblical. Isn't that why we're here? Well, this is not biblical community. This is a worship gathering. This is where you... Um, come to hear God's word and to worship together. Biblical community is loving one another in a smaller context. So I wonder, how do you do that? How how do I do that? I think that joining uh, a biblical community, a smaller community in some ways puts you in the path that Jesus walked because you have opportunities to deny yourself and love people. So I want to encourage you to figure out what is that small community that I can do life with. Number four, engage people with the gospel. Engage people with the gospel. Share your life as well as the gospel with people. There's nothing harder, perhaps, um, nothing that forces us to deny ourselves more, perhaps, than sharing the gospel and our lives with people who may may not know Jesus. Jesus. Commit to that. And number five, go on the whole prayer walk this afternoon. (laughs) Churches that are willing to risk to extend themselves outwards to sacrifice comfort and convenience, it's those kinds of churches that ever consider church planning to begin with. And it's only Christians who deny themselves, perhaps, of the stability and the normalcy and the comfort of their home church, that will ever consider joining a church plant, something that feels so unknown and unstable. Might God want some of us, even this, here this morning, to consider how we might join church planting efforts and prayers that are being made for Hall, a place that does not have an evangelical church. This is a very challenging passage. I want to end on an encouraging note. Romans chapter 8 says that if we suffer with Him, we will be glorified with Him. You see, this, this passage, this beautiful reflection on Jesus, it, ex- it ends with God exalting Jesus and it ends with, with us getting a vision of the day that's coming down the road when every knee will bow, when all things will be made new, when everything that should be will be. And that's the vision that I think we all need in order to walk this path of humiliation with our Lord, to walk this self-denying path, because we have to believe that this is a temporary existence. There's something better coming. And it's this kind of vision that helps me get through today and tomorrow. It's this kind of vision that I need to remember when God throws me into the deep end. Let's pray. Father, we do glory in Jesus, Lord. This morning we we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life, we thank you for his death, we thank you for his resurrection and what all of that means for us, Lord. We cannot praise you enough. And we are humbled to see your humility. We're humbled to see and, and realize and recognize that we we are not humble people, Lord. We confess that to you. We are not people that are willing to go the extra mile. Forgive us, Father. Give us energy and strength and resolve to walk with you in obedience, the path of self-denial, Lord. Bless these good people. Encourage them. Strengthen them to live for you this week,